If you have a copy of the Bible, you can go ahead and open it. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Hebrews again this morning. We're going to start in chapter 9. We're going to go through the first 10 verses of that chapter of the Scriptures, Hebrews chapter 9. But I wanted to to thank you ongoingly for your generosity as a church family and your, uh, whether as individuals or families, uh, your giving toward the general fund of our church and even towards special projects that come up. Uh, I am so grateful uh, as one of your pastors, not just as a recipient of that and being able to be freed up from marketplace work to minister, but for what it enables here in our community and all over the world. Uh, I wanted to to share uh, a couple updates about next Sunday, uh, or uh, updates, previews of next Sunday, if you're able to be with us or to whet your appetite for being with us next Sunday. Uh, We're going to have two special guests with us. Um, One is going to be a man named Dave Kuntz, who some of you know in the community. He is the director of two different organizations locally, of Heartline Pregnancy Center and of North Central Indiana Right to Life. Uh, We've invited him to come in and share some updates about those ministries. They're ones we support as a church uh, from our general fund. And so we invited him to come share updates and share even ways that we could be involved in helping uh, extend that ministry and be active in in what it's doing in our community. So he'll be with us next Sunday. So be on the lookout for him and be attentive and welcoming to him. And then the other uh, person who's going to be here, some of you have met him before, but uh, his name is Ben Shaw. He's the tall British guy I've been telling you about for several weeks. Um, uh, We have been with a paid staff person to help give oversight to worship music uh, for several months now. We've been slowly talking to him about the prospect of moving here uh, and actually planting roots here for the foreseeable future and service on staff here. And it seems like the Lord is showing favor in that as we continue to apply for visas and things like that, even to the point where he's going to come for a week and spend a week with us and start to scout out places to live. And he wants to get to know us better and let us get to know him better. And so he's going to be with us uh, starting Thursday and through the rest of that week that follows. He's going to even get to lead music uh, next Sunday morning for us, so uh, be on the lookout for him, be welcoming to him, be an encouragement to him, and be praying for him too, and for the church that he serves currently uh, in England as they uh, lose a dear brother, uh, but as he comes, hopefully, Lord willing, to join us here. All right, uh, that is all by way of announcement. Uh, I learned about something as we come to today's text, and I was studying it uh, in the subject of conscience that it addresses. I learned about something that maybe I'm guessing a few of you know what it is, but I had never heard of it before. Uh, it is something that the United States Treasury Department runs, I think, or maybe even the IRS more specifically. It is something called the Conscience Fund. This is a real thing called the Conscience Fund. I was set up in the 1800s. It's still running today. I think it has received millions upon millions of dollars over the decades that it's been in existence. But what the Conscience Fund is, you can maybe guess, it's for people, citizens of our country, who feel guilty about ways that they have stolen money from or cheated the federal government. And they, they have done this in some way, shape, or form, but they're feeling guilty. Their conscience will not let them rest. The the Treasury Department has opened up this fund that people can send money to, uh, typically anonymously, as you could imagine. Uh, They're sending this uh, money into this Treasury Department conscience fund to try to appease their conscience, uh, to make themselves feel better, to help themselves uh, rest better at night. I think there's been, from looking it up, there's been donations as small as nine cents for someone who felt guilty about a postage stamp they creatively reused uh, years ago. uh, To I think there's been gifts of hundreds of thousands thousands of dollars uh, from certain people. Um, But the existence of that, the existence of the conscience fund, 
I think is a testimony to the power of the human conscience. The very fact that we even have that and that people actually give into it show the power of the human conscience. Because think about this, and I hope none of you are in that crowd that has given into that. I hope you would own up to it. I hope you would never do that in the first place. Uh, But these are people who have gotten away with it right? Whether it was the little stamp or the ways they've evaded uh, taxation in the past, they have gotten away with it. Nobody's making them give this in. They're voluntarily doing it because they feel the wrongness of it. Like they cannot escape the wrongness of something that may be hidden to everybody else, maybe unknown to every other soul on this planet. They know the truth of it. And they feel the weight of it, of what they have done. And they they know what others don't. And so they try to soothe their conscience. They try to shut it up. They try to get it to be quiet by doing something, by sending something in to this conscience fund. But as you could imagine, it doesn't always work. It doesn't always actually appease their conscience. There was one letter uh, they apparently got a record of that was uh, attached to a donation that was sent in where a person wrote this, they wrote, Dear IRS, I haven't been able to sleep at night because I cheated on last year's income tax. Enclosed, find a cashier's check for $1,000. Then they wrote this, If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. <laughs> and so, it's like they, they're trying to like find what's the bare minimum I can do to deal with this and like get it off my mind and maybe this will work if I send in this amount. But they know, even in the back of their mind, that's probably not going to make me feel better. Uh, with the existence of this testifies to the power of the human conscience. And I think if I had to ask each of you, I think you know that experientially. Like, you know the power of your own conscience. Like, you know what goes on in your mind and heart. When other people don't see it, you have felt the power of the human conscience because it's part of our bearing the image of God as human beings. Uh, That is part of who we are as image bearers of our God is that we know right and wrong, right? Animals don't. Like, we know right and wrong. And a step further, we choose wrong. Like, we choose things that we know are sinful And beyond that, we feel the wrongness of it. It's not just that we know it, that it's wrong. We feel the wrongness of it. Our conscience cannot be easily soothed, can it? It can't be easily appeased. It can't be easily quieted. It it pesters us, right? It plagues us sometimes, depending on the nature of the sin. We cannot quiet it on our own. And so the question then that, that, that begs of us, and I think what this text is going to take us to, is what do we do with a guilty conscience? Like, what do human beings do? What can we do with a guilty conscience? There's many things we may try to do, but what should we do? What can we actually do to console it? And so uh, I, I trust that this text will speak to us about that subject and speak to you individually and to us collectively about what we do with this subject of our conscience. And even as we listen to it, how do we actually start to speak to it? How how can we actually address it, confront it, soothe it? There's only one way that we can. 
So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10 this morning. The book of Hebrews is a letter, it feels almost like a transcript of a sermon uh, that was written or or spoken and then maybe recorded by someone, we don't know who, uh, to a group of early Christians who were ethnically Jewish. They'd grown up uh, under the old covenant, they had grown up hearing the law of Moses, uh, maybe even going to the temple in Jerusalem, definitely being part of these rituals that were part of the old covenant, but now they've heard about this Messiah They presumably have put their faith in him, Jesus. They've given their lives to him, but they're facing this temptation to go back to old covenant law keeping. We've seen again and again the author addressing them on this subject, calling them to stay the course, to not drift back to those things. And most recently, as we get up to speed to where we are today, he's been comparing pretty directly the old covenant and the new covenant. The old way that God had dealt with his people for centuries upon centuries and this new covenant, this new way that God is dealing with his people through Christ. And he's contrasting them and showing the new is better than the old. The second is better than the first. And in this section that we're about to read, you'll see he's going to start to talk about the regulations of the old covenant. Some of the things that God had called them to do, ways he'd called them to operate, especially around the tabernacle, which was the tent that God had told Moses to have them build where God himself could come and live. Uh, He's going to talk in this text about the objects that God said to put in the tabernacle, uh, the rituals that priests were supposed to do there in the tabernacle, but then he's going to ultimately land the plane with this text by saying how those regulations could do nothing to appease the human conscience. They could do absolutely nothing to touch the inner person, to address that human conscience that plagues us all. And so I want to read this text to you and to us, and even to myself, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 through 10. I would encourage you to follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, the author continues. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, there is a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word. 
This text addresses the question of how can the guilty conscience be soothed? Or how can it not be soothed? Maybe more accurately, how can it not be soothed? And by inference, then, he's going to tell us how it can be soothed. Point us to the one place we can look where the conscience can be soothed. But even in this text itself, the author doesn't jump directly to the subject of conscience. He ends there, right? And so I want to end there as well. Where he starts is almost like a little tour through the tabernacle and what was in it and the things that would be done in it. Uh, That's where he starts, and that's where I want to start there. He's going to be bending his way toward the subject of the human conscience and how it can, how it cannot be soothed. And so first I want to show you a few things in this text about the regulations of the Old Covenant. Uh, That'll be heading number one, the regulations of the Old Covenant. That's the language the author uses as he starts in verse one, right? He says, he talks about regulations. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, right? And so he's talking about these ways of operating, these things, objects that were to be in there, and then ways priests were supposed to operate there in the tabernacle, these different regulations. He, He talks briefly about the two sections of the tabernacle that God had prescribed, and then he talks about the services performed within them. So real briefly, the sections of the tabernacle that he describes here, and I think I have a picture uh, that you can look at which may be of help to you. It's impossible to really get an accurate view of this because it would have been enclosed, it would have been uh, covered over the top, so they kind of like did a, a drawing and almost like peeled off the, the covering that would have been over this tent that was called the tabernacle. Um, but this, this author reminds the readers that there were two sections, that's the language he uses in this text, two sections of this tent, two sections of the tabernacle that were divided by a second curtain. The first curtain would have been that first one to even get into the first area, and then you can see the other purple curtain was a second curtain that would divide the two sections. There was this first kind of front section called the holy place, then there was a back section called the most holy place. And as he's giving them kind of this verbal tour, he mentions a few things that if they would have gone into the tabernacle that they would have seen. Remember, none of them had probably been in the tabernacle. It was only priests would get to go in and only the high priest once a year would get to go into that back room. They would have only heard of this uh, in in reciting of, of the law as they heard it read. But he called that first section, that front section, the holy place. And in that section, he describes some of the furniture that would have been there, uh, how there was a lampstand. You can see kind of on what's front to us or on the left side, uh, there was a lampstand that would be attended to. There was a table then on the far side where on that table there would be this what was called the bread of the presence that they would uh, replace once a week. Uh, But then he says, he reminds that there's a curtain between the two sections in this text. And then the back area called the most holy place, or you may have heard it called the holy of holies uh, before. What he says is contained there as he's going through his delineation of these things. He talks about the altar of incense, which technically speaking was actually on the front side of the curtain. But they would take, when the priest would go into that back section, he would have to take some of the incense with him. And so he talks about that. And then he talks talks about that Ark of the Covenant, which was like 
a glorious box of sorts covered in gold that he says things that would have been contained in it were the Ark of the Covenant. That was Ark of Covenant, but what was in it was an urn that somehow had manna that had been left over that God was somehow miraculously sustaining, uh, that it had Aaron's staff in it that had budded to show the, the truthfulness of his family and his descendants as the priests. And then the most important part of what was in the Ark of the Covenant that he mentions here was the tablets of the covenant. Those were the things that God had, had God's law inscribed upon them and had had God's law inscribed upon them for centuries. Those were the things that were inside that holy place. And so, But his purpose in detailing those things is not to get into the weeds of all what was what and what was sitting where. I so appreciate as a preacher the end of verse 5 because I feel this every single Sunday where he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I think that if I don't say it every single Sunday, so it's nice to have some resonance with, with somebody who is a preacher. He's not trying to get into all the details. He just kind of wanted them to do a quick survey of, hey, there was two sections, and there was a curtain between the two sections. But then he spends a bit of time as he gets into verse 6 and 7, he talks about the service that would happen inside of that tent, the things that, the, that part of the regulations, of what was supposed to actually happen inside that tent. And so the first thing he says in verse 6 is that the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Uh, what they would have done as the priest would come in, there would have at least been a priest going in twice a day into that first section of the tabernacle. They would have had to go in to do certain things that God had prescribed. Uh, for example, that lampstand, twice a day there was supposed to be a priest who would go in who would trim the lampstand. It wasn't like electricity. They could just keep on, right? Like they had to uh, trim those lamps, keep them lit. They would go in twice a day to do that. There was also sacrifices that were supposed happen twice a day, that the priest would bring blood in from those sacrifices to put on that altar of incense. Uh, so there would be a priest doing that twice every day. And then weekly there was tasks that they would have to do, that bread of the presence that would sit on that table. Uh, once a week on the Sabbath day, a priest would go in and replace that. There'd be 12 loaves of unleavened bread that they would replace there. And so regularly they're going in to do those rituals into that first section of the tabernacle. But what he says in verse 7 is he says there's a much more limited thing that is done, a routine with that back area, the most holy place. It's not entered into daily. It's entered into only once a year by one person. Uh, and he said, he's speaking about the Day of Atonement that was described back in Leviticus 16. And what he, how he describes it quickly here, he says into that section, he goes just once a year and not without taking blood. So there's sacrifices that had to be made on that day of atonement. There would be a blood of a sacrifice for his own sin as a sinful priest. And there would be blood of another animal that he would be required to bring in. That was for the, un, he calls it here, the unintentional sins of the people. That was for the nation, for all of God's people collectively. Blood would have to be brought into that back part of the tabernacle, into that most holy place. And so sacrifice, he implies by that sacrifice was required to get into that holy of holies. But why, so why is he even taking time to describe this? Why is he reminding them of these, the, the furniture of the tabernacle? Why is he reminding them of the, the service that was required of it? There's a point to him doing this. It's not just to kill time. He's, he's doing this on purpose because he wants them to see their significance even in how God set these regulations up. 
that, that God was trying from the get-go to show something, to explain something, demonstrate something, even through that setup of the tabernacle and the rituals of it. And so you see as he gets into verse 8, he talks about what I would describe, this would be the second heading of the morning, as the message of the Holy Spirit, what, he, what the Spirit himself was indicating or communicating by these regulations, how it was set up and the service that would happen in the tabernacle. If you look at verse 8, he's just been talking about all those regulations, right? How it was built, what was supposed to happen in there. Verse 8 starts by saying, by this, like by this pattern of sacrifice and the, the curtain and the two sections, by all of this, the Holy Spirit indicates something. He's communicating. He's always been communicating something through uh, these regulations. And what he's communicating, verse 8 says, is that uh, the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. This is a a fascinating argument and and what he's trying to say here. If you weren't here a couple of Sundays ago, I I would point you back to just one chapter before this. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5 was a really important verse because the author had told these people who are now hearing this about the tabernacle, he had told them that tabernacle, this physical tent that God said to build, was supposed to be made as a model of sorts to indicate heavenly realities, to demonstrate what was true in the heavenlies. He had said back in chapter 8, verse 5, that these priests who go into that tabernacle are serving, he said, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And so if God sets up this tent in a certain way on earth, he's trying to show something about the spiritual realm, something that is true there in the, the heavenly realms. And what he was trying to indicate, what the Spirit is indicating through the structure of that tent is what is true about the heavenly realities. It is the closed nature of that most holy place. That it was not a place you got where God dwells on earth, but even more so in the heavens. Where God dwells, you cannot just enter willy-nilly. In fact, most people cannot even enter it at all. It was off limits by and large, other than just for a moment once a year, one person was allowed to go in. And what he's saying is that the way into the holy places isn't yet opened, right? That, that curtain was like a big keep out sign. Like you cannot come near to God. You cannot enter into his presence. And this tabernacle is a reminder to you of that. This curtain that many of you don't even get to get inside the first curtain, to even see the second curtain, like those are reminders to you, you cannot just approach God however you see fit. And so the existence of this tabernacle in the center of the camp of God's people is this fascinating message from the Holy Spirit that I think intentionally had mixed signals, that it was indicating to God's people God's desire to dwell with them Right? Like that he wanted to be amongst them. He wants to be near them. He wants to be caring for them and guiding them. Uh, he wants to be there amongst them. So that's part of what the tabernacle teaches. But the, how the tabernacle was set up was to indicate to the people, you can't actually draw near to God. Like yet, at least. God intends to be near you. He intends to dwell amongst you and in the center of your camp. But you can't personally yet approach God yourself. You can't draw near to him in this earthly place, let alone in the heavenly places. You cannot draw near on your own. And so that the Spirit is communicating that through the structure of the tabernacle, that God wants to dwell with you, but you cannot dwell with him just yet. 
that is closed off to you. And so their sins remain. Their sins are not really truly dealt with through all these sacrifices, all these rituals, because they still are not allowed into that holy of holies. Their sins don't fade away. They accumulate. Right? They multiply, they stack up, they com- compound again and again and again. And this is where now the author gets to the subject of the human conscience. After now he's got, done this little tour and, and reminded them that that, that curtain is, is a big keep out sign for them. He's finally going to arrive down in verse 9 at the subject of the conscience of the worshiper. And I, I'd call this heading the inconsolability of the conscience. That it cannot, uh, just by human means, be consoled. Your conscience cannot. My conscience cannot just be soothed and consoled and, and quieted by anything that we do ourselves. And he says as much here, right? As he gets into verse 9, and he, he says, according to this arrangement, like of the tabernacle and all that was supposed to happen in it, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Like these were God-commanded sacrifices. They, they were things God told them to do again and again. He told these priests to bring the blood of those sacrifices in twice a day. He told those priests on that day of atonement to bring the blood of certain types of animals into his presence. He had told them how to do it. But what, he, what the author is wanting them to see is those even God-ordained sacrifices cannot touch the human conscience within. They cannot cleanse it. They can't purify it. He uses language. They can't perfect it, like make it into what it's supposed to be. The the sinners who watch those sacrifices happen, who watch those priests go into the tabernacle again and again, day by day, year by year, they know within them that they are still guilty. They know within their own mind and heart that my conscience is still racked with guilt. And I want you to imagine for a moment being a Jew in the days of the Old Covenant, when that tabernacle was still there, when it had maybe become the temple eventually. Imagine being a Jew in those old covenant days. Let's say you were there. Let's say you lived in Jerusalem or around it once the temple was set up. Let's say you got to watch all those animals be killed. And you got to see the priests go in. You got to see them enter into the holy place. You see them go behind that curtain. You kind of know what they're doing in there. Would that really, would watching that really give you peace internally for the sin that you know you've committed against the God who's inside there when somebody else has to go in there and they've got to come right back out right and they have to offer these sacrifices again and again now I would guess if I was there it may give me some sort of temporary relief Right? Like, after all, this is something God told us to do. Like, he, he told us to offer these sacrifices, and it would maybe feel like, man, I've accumulated these sins in recent days. I remember them. But somehow, this, this priest, I know he put his head on, or hand on the head of this animal, and maybe somehow my sin was transferred to that thing. I don't know how all that works. You maybe didn't fully connect all the dots, but you, you see it happen. And you may have had, when he slays that animal and takes that blood in, you may have had some sort of sense of temporary relief but what would happen in your conscience when you would sin again that night right or when you are laying your head down at night and you remember a sin that you had forgotten about from a week before that was the repressed one from long ago what happens when you 
pass by a certain person, you remember a way you have mistreated them or a way you took advantage of them or something, some harm that you have done? What happens when you have recurring dreams that you can't escape, that are just plaguing you? Like, what, hap- what do you do then when, you, when the Day of Atonement is way on the horizon? It's maybe 11 months away. How is your conscience addressed then? Is, are you going back to that animal that was slain and say, oh, that, that animal died for me. I'm good with God. I forgot about that. Like, is that really going to soothe your conscience to remember that animal? To remember that sinful priest that you know ways he's even wronged you and you've seen him go into the holy place. You don't even know for sure what's happening in there. And then he comes back out. Is that really going to clear your conscience? Let's say you go through all the rituals of, of cleansing and stuff, even beyond the sacrifices. You know there's a certain type of uncleanliness that has come upon you, and the law says you need to go wash a certain way and stay away from people a certain amount of days. When, you ha- when that has passed, do you now think, oh, now I'm truly clean on the inside? Or does your conscience know I am unclean on the inside? Like, you, you know it. You can't escape it. I'm guessing even Old Covenant Jewish men and women, boys and girls, knew their conscience couldn't really be cleansed. It couldn't really be dealt with that. The inner turmoil still remained even as they went through those external rituals. So they wonder, will God really forgive me? Like, will, if those animals have really dealt with my sin, why can't I go in there? Right? If those animals have really dealt with my sin, why doesn't God come out? Like, why does he stay in there? Why is it that keep out sign essentially still stay? Why does it stay? Why do we have to keep doing this again and again? Like, why all these animals? Why do they have to die? Why does this priest have to do this again and again? And as you would think about those things, I bet your conscience would whisper to you or maybe sometimes shout to you as you would look in the mirror, guilty. You are guilty. You are still guilty, 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 guilty. And your mind would just run with this. You would, there's nothing about that sacrifice that would make you truly think in the depths of your soul, I am forgiven. Like my, my conscience is clean. And so I'm guessing they still had these racked consciences, even as they went through these rituals. And my guess is that you have had a racked conscience as well. Whether presently, I'm guessing some of you in the room, you still do. Are there some of you who you remember this in the past? And I want to take a few moments for you, each of you in the room and myself, to think about this human experience of the guilty conscience. And what do we do with it? Like, how do we try to soothe it? Because the truth is, whether we acknowledge it or not, we are all sinful. Like, we know right and wrong. Whether we grew up in church, whether we've heard a word of the Bible, we know right and wrong. And we choose wrong. And we know it. Like eyes wide open, we choose to sin against God. And we feel the wrongness of it. That you don't have to teach a kid to feel the wrongness of sin. You don't have to teach them to sin, first of all. You also don't have to teach them to feel the wrongness of it either. Like, we intuitively have reactions where we, if you watch a little toddler, they do something wrong, they know it, they go run and hide, right? Or they try to cover it up and not let mom and dad know what they did because they know it's wrong, right? Adam and Eve, when they took the bite of that fruit they weren't supposed to eat, they knew instantly the wrongness of it. 
They felt the wrongness of it, right? And they try to hide from God. They try to cover themselves. We know this as human beings. It is hardwired into us that we are sinners and we know it and we feel it. There's a, a quote I came across this week from Mark Twain where he said, and he calls humans animals. Here's what his point is, though. He said, man is the only animal that blushes and the only animal that needs to. Like, we, we know it. Like, we know when we do wrong, we feel it in our bones. And I think sometimes we are too quick to try to soothe people's guilty consciences. Whether it's our own or somebody else's, and we're, we're feeling the wrongness of what we've done, or other people are feeling the wrongness of their sin, and we try out of niceness or kindness to try to soothe that with things that should not soothe. Like, oh, that, I'm sure you didn't mean that. That's not that bad. Like, everybody does that. All these sorts of things that we try to soothe people's consciences instead of letting the human conscience do the work that God intended for it to do. To remind us that I am a sinner. I am a guilty sinner who deserves the judgment of God. And what do we do with that? What, you've probably tried some of these things I'm about to mention. I've tried to do some of these things that I'm about to mention. When we experience that guilt-ridden conscience, there's things that I think we tend to do as human beings to try to deal with it. To try to like put it at bay. For example, I'm going to list off several of these just quickly. Sometimes when we feel a guilty conscience, whether we're an ancient person or a modern person, we just try to ignore it, right? Like we just hope it goes away. Like I've done something wrong, I've done something I know is wrong, so I'm just going to try to ignore it. Even as my conscience speaks to me and reminds me of my guilt, I'm just going to try to shut it up, close my ears to it. But we know, like if something is right here and I close my eyes, I know it's still there right? Like peekaboo only works with babies for like a year and then they know, oh, when you, when you cover my eyes, you're still there. Like when we, we can't pretend something's not there when we know it is. Like we know that sin is on our record. We know we have done this or that or these things. We know it even if we try to ignore it, right? Another thing we try to do with our conscience is we try to deny it. We try to deny the seriousness of it, right? Sometimes we even try to pretend with other people or ourselves that I didn't really do that, did I? Or like as it gets further back in our memory, we like try to convince ourselves I didn't really do that or it wasn't really that bad, the thing that I did. Like surely I wouldn't have done that. We try to lie to ourselves even to rewrite history. But we know in our heart of hearts and you know in your heart of hearts God doesn't rewrite history, right? God knows what you have done. God knows what I have done. He knows what you will do in the future. No matter how you try to replay a story in your mind, God does not. There are no scripts rewritten for him. Like, so sometimes we try to ignore, sometimes we try to deny what we've done. Sometimes we try to justify ourselves for what we did, right? We know it was wrong, but we try to soothe our conscience by convince, reminding ourselves of why we did it. Like there was some reason, there was some good intent I had. I, maybe I was confused or something, but, but I meant well by what I did, even though I know it was wrong. And we try to justify ourselves and convince us that our motives were pure. Sometimes when we feel a guilty conscience, we try to compare ourselves with other people. And we hear the voice within ourselves saying how, how wrong that thing was or how guilty I am as a person. And we, we go down this train of thought where we think, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. 
Or like, have you looked at our world today? <laughs> like, uh, I am not as bad as them. Like, my sin doesn't hold a candle to them. But the fact that we are all guilty doesn't mean I am not guilty, right? You can point your finger to the sins of others. That does nothing about the sin in you. Two other things we try to do with a guilty conscience. One is we try to do what some people call penance. We try, we know I have done something or I've done some line of things and maybe other people don't know but I'm going to somehow try to kind of secretly, privately inflict some sort of judgment on myself. Like I'm going to bring harm to myself. I'm going to be hard on myself. I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going to deny myself of certain things. I'm going to be hard on myself whether with words or actions. I'm going to inflict something on myself. But that is not how divine justice works. We don't get to punish ourselves and think that that deals with it because we are not the ones we have wronged, right? We can't deal with a guilty conscience by just doing penance and being hard on myself. And the last thing I think that we try to do with a guilty conscience is we try to do what I would call restitution, we know I've done something wrong, so to make up for it, I'm going to try to do good that overpowers that. I'm going to try to accumulate good in my life, and maybe that'll help me forget about the, the wrong that I've done, forget about the guilt that's on my record. I'm going to try to compensate and make it up to people, make it up to God. But that is believing this lie that, that God's judgment is on some sort of scale. Like if I can just somehow tip it in, in favor of good works, that, then the sin doesn't matter. That is not how God's justice works. None of those things, those are the best things I can think of that we try to do with the guilty conscience. But none of those things actually soothe our conscience. We try to do them, and the guilt remains. We, we know it remains. It sticks. It's like a stain we can't scrub out. No matter if we try to ignore it, we try to wash it, we try to do things to clean it, we cannot get the stain to go away. It keeps speaking to us. It keeps uh, condemning us. And to, just to bring you a little bit lower before I try to bring you up, that's just with the sins we know about, right? That's the ones we actually feel guilty for. Did you know he said that this priest had to make sacrifice for unintentional sins? Like there's a whole host of those things we don't even feel guilty for, but still need and deserve the judgment of God to come down upon us for those things. And so even if our conscience learns more and more of wrong that we've done, it doesn't help. It just, they compound, they multiply, they accumulate in our life. I read this, a story this week about a man some of you may have heard of named Albert Speer. Uh, he was a, a German man during World War II. Uh, he was an architect in Berlin, I think, uh, for a while and caught the eye of Adolf Hitler and Adolf Hitler started having him be him, his main architect uh, that would help design buildings and cities and, and things like that. He ultimately became what was called the Minister of Armaments. And so he was in charge of developing uh, the mass production of war materials and, and all the things that the Nazis needed. And eventually at the end of World War II, he was convicted, as you would imagine and expect, convicted of war crimes. And he was one of the few people who wasn't actually executed for those things. And he spent 20 years in a prison in Berlin. And he wrote two books as he came out of prison and then ended his life over a few decades that ensued after that. And he had such a desire to clear his conscience of what he had done. 
And I don't have time to get into everything that he did, but there were these things. He would try to deny that he even knew what really happened, that he somehow didn't know that all these millions of Jewish people were getting killed. He was in denial. Um, but there's a quote from an interview that took place that I found fascinating and sad and heartbreaking. He said, I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime, and I can't get rid of it. And then he talked about this new book. He said, this new book is part of my atoning, of clearing my conscience. That's what he, he was trying to do by writing these records of his life and, and the things that he hoped people could learn from it. He was trying to clear his conscience. And the reporter said to him, you really don't think you'll be able to clear it totally? And he, the, the, the person said that he shook his head and said, I don't think it will be possible. Like, this man knew his guilt, even if he tried to deny it. He knew the horrible atrocities that had flowed from his ideas, his things that he constructed. He knew his guilt, and even after decades of a prison sentence, and even after trying to do good, he knew in the depths of his soul, I cannot atone for this sin. Like, my conscience is still as guilty as the day I walked into that prison. Like he knew there was nothing that he could humanly do to clear his conscience. He knew it was impossible to do. But the fact that he thought it was impossible to have a clear conscience does not mean that it's impossible to have a clear conscience. Because the good news for you and the good news for me, any of us who ever have a guilty conscience, is there is one way we can receive a clean conscience. And it's not by going to the tabernacle. And it's not by seeing animals killed for us. There's one place that we can look for a clear conscience, and it is at the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the one place you can look to have a clear conscience. This text ends in verse 10 by him, as he's talking about this tabernacle and that keep out, basically that was communicating uh, to the people by its standing. He's, he notes for them that that tabernacle, that arrangement was temporary. He said that it stayed, there are regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Like that, that God and the Holy Spirit, as they had, had set up that tabernacle, knew there was a time coming where the tabernacle would come down, where it wouldn't be necessary anymore, that that keep out sign would be tore down. And it was at the cross of Christ. I will get to preach, Lord willing, much more on this next Sunday as he gets into verse 11 and following, but I cannot not point you to the cross this morning. Because I do hope that you have felt the weight of your conscience. I hope that you have felt the, the reality you can do nothing to appease it. You can do nothing to clear it. But God has done something for you so that you can. And it was the sending of his son Jesus to become a sacrifice that actually was effective. Because at the cross of Jesus, on full display for you and for the world, was out in public, not behind some curtain, out in public, the sins of people like me and you were laid upon the innocent Son of God, Jesus. And he suffered the full judgment of God for those sins. Every single bit of it that should fall upon sinners like us for eternity. Jesus bore it all that afternoon, that Friday afternoon on the cross. He bore it all the full wrath of God so that we might be forgiven, so that we don't have to pretend that we have not sinned, 
right? But we can look at the cross and say, my sins, every single one of them were put on him, and the ju- my judge punished him in my place. That is what was happening at the cross. So we don't have to deny our conscience, right? We don't have to downplay the seriousness of our sin. We don't have to try to justify ourselves before God. We don't have to try to compare ourselves to others. We don't have to try to do penance and punish ourselves, and we don't have to try to impress God with good works because everything necessary to deal with our conscience was done at the cross. It all was done at the cross, and we see the vileness of our sin there at the cross. We don't have to deafen our conscience. We can let it scream to us and say, I'm putting my eyes on the cross. My sin is bad, and there's more than I even know. But every bit of it was laid upon him, and God punished him in my place so that I might be forgiven, that I might be free, so that when my conscience screams to me, I can tell it, and I can tell myself, look at the cross. Like, I don't have to run away. I don't have to to tell it to shut up. I can point it to the cross. I can point my own heart, my own guilty conscience to the cross and say, Christ crucified for me. But we don't have to just look at a dead Savior, right? Christ was laid in the tomb, and more than just suffering for us, he has been raised for us as well. And that resurrection of Jesus that Sunday morning long ago is God's testimony to you and to me that that sacrifice of Jesus actually worked, right? Because I was thinking about this. If I had committed some sort of crime here, and God bless our police officers, but let's say somehow they got duped and the, the legal system got duped somehow and somebody else got arrested for my crime, And somebody else got convicted of it. And they've done jail time for it. They've been maybe in prison, something for it. If that was really my situation, like I saw somebody else suffered for me, basically, I don't know about you, but my head would not lay down peacefully at night still because I would know they still could come after me. Like if they really found out the truth, they could still come after me. And I could still land there just like that person who's been there supposedly in my place. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a message from the judge himself that he has allowed Jesus to take our record onto himself. That he, God the Father, has punished Jesus eyes wide open in our place. Nobody's been duped. God the Father's not been tricked. My guilt was set on Jesus And Jesus was punished for my sins completely. The resurrection of Jesus is testimony to that fact. That your sin has been paid in full if you're united with Christ. That my sin has been paid in full. I don't need to to dread it. I don't need to dread the judgment of God. So there is one place in all the universe, in all of history, that guilty human beings like me and you can look to find a clear conscience. And it is outside Jerusalem on a Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago when God's son was crucified for our sins. That is where you take a guilty conscience. That is where you run to when you feel the weight of your sin is to the cross of Jesus. And when fellow Christians in the room, when you feel your conscience rise up again in accusation towards you, when you feel Satan tempt you to despair, look to the cross again. And look to the cross again, and look to the cross again, and look to the cross again. There is no other place you're going to find rest for your soul and peace for your conscience. I wanted to to close with the words of a hymn that was written by Isaac Watts. He wrote this. It's It's become known just by the first line. 
of the, of the hymn. He wrote this. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away his stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. And he personifies his faith. My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of thine, while like a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. My soul looks back to see the burdens thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree and knows her guilt was there. Believing, we rejoice to see the curse remove. We bless the lamb with cheerful voice and sing his bleeding love. That is good news. We all have guilty consciences. You don't have to pretend like you don't. I know it whether you deny it or not. You have a conscience that is guilty. I do too. But there is a sacrifice that has been made for our sin at the cross of Jesus that can provide a clear conscience. And so... Hear this as the summary message of this text, that nothing can soothe the guilty conscience, nothing can soothe it except a trusting look at the cross of Christ. That is the only thing that can soothe your conscience today, tomorrow, and eternity is the cross of Christ. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to stand.